0: Hello, everyone. It's Harmon. Welcome to another episode of Comedy History 101. We school you in comedy. Hey, Comedy History 101 is coming to you live on March 19th at the People's Improv Theater Loft, the Pit Loft. That's right. We're going to do a very special live show here in New York City for you people. You can come meet us in person. That's right. Once again, March 19th at the Pit Loft. 7 p.m. you can go to the Pit website and find out more or to our website comedy history 101 and today we have a special two-part episode for you on the history of the legendary comedy club the Purple Onion in San Francisco it launched the careers of Phyllis Diller the Smothers Brothers Lenny Bruce played there Woody Allen played there Jonathan Winters and without further ado
1: Everybody so stupid. Good thing about doing comedy in Russia have captured the audience. You're stupid.
2: everybody so stupid.
1: Comedy History 101. For is delighted to present our young men of melody, the music and the profound nonsense of the Smothers Brothers. Let's say hello. <laughs>
0: Long, long drum opening, huh? All right, I think we got that right.
2: <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. Yep.
0: So what you just heard there was the opening of the album, the legendary album, Smothers Brothers Live at the Purple Onion, which, which is a bit of a misnomer, uh, Scott. Why is that, Harmon? As irony would serve, the, the the Smothers Brothers Live at the Purple Onion album. The only thing that was recorded at the the Purple Onion, which is the legendary comedy club. That was in San Francisco, which opened in 1952, was 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 the intro of of the Smothers Brothers live at the Purple Onion. <laughs> um, yes. the, the, the tape somehow got uh, uh, damaged, and so they actually where, where did they have to go to, to actually re- record the album?
2: They had to go to Space City, Houston, Texas, to record this wow. the album. But actually, so that was before. If that was in the 50s, it was before it was Space City.
0: That's right. And what you've tuned into, everyone, is another episode of Comedy History 101. Where we school you in comedy. I, of course, and Harmon Leon, and with me, of course, Scott Kalanico. Scott, how are you? Top of the
2: morning to you, Harmon.
0: Top of the morning. And, and first of all, what, what is the Purple Onion for those who might not know what the legendary comedy club, the Purple Onion, was? And I'm saying well, I mean, in the past you, tense because
2: it is no yeah, more. Yeah, well, you just you you kind of just said it right there. It's a legendary comedy club, also uh, a music venue, equally not quite as legendary, but uh, a pretty famous music venue uh, in San Francisco in the North Beach area as well.
0: I would say it's probably one of the most legendary comedy clubs of all time. Uh, is is the, the the Purple Onion because it. In its heyday, uh, which was the late 50s and early 60s, um, it was a comedy club that on its stage had the likes of Bob Newhart, Phyllis Diller, Lenny Bruce, Woody Allen, Richard Pryor, Jonathan Winters.
1: I always use this Yellow Miller. How <laughs> a dandy on it last year. Oh boy. Yes, sir. Okay. <coughs> <Jeez. laughs> That's the
0: penalty you pay for fishing. Oh no. And of course, the Smothers Brothers. Who we just heard at the opening, who filmed, who recorded just the intro of their album, Smothers Brothers, live at the Purple Onion, and the rest was recorded at a comedy club in Texas. Is there
3: someone over there on the microphone over there, the house mic? Is it loud? Maybe. I would like a little louder, like. Is it loud? Is it loud enough? Okay. I don't know if the mic's. Is someone. Tasting. One, two, three, four. Tasting. (laughs) Tasting. Tasting. One, two, three. <clears throat> little tasting. One, two, three, four, tasting.
0: <laughs> That's a little joke. <laughs> Houston. Houston, Texas. To be you are your haunting ground.
2: Yeah, my old style. I am I am one quarter Houstonian, I guess we could say. But I'm also I am a San Francisco native, born and bred.
0: Really? But you were born you were born in the six five oh, correct? Or the four oh eight?
2: Uh, yeah. I think it was the four hundred eight. I was up yeah, yeah. While, so, so oh,
0: I'm from San Francisco. Oh, where are you from? <laughs> Livermore. Okay. No, uh, no, yeah, no, no. You're San no, Francisco I mean, if you're the four one five.
2: Yeah, well, kind of like where they had they had the airport, dude. You know, they wouldn't mm-hmm. call it the San Francisco International Airport if it wasn't in San Francisco. It San isn't. Francisco. It's in. It's in like by San Mateo. Well, dude, don't knock San Mateo. Or, it or it's it's, it's, closer to this,
0: yeah, it's closer to South San Francisco, the
2: airport, yeah. really. So, are we, so um, yeah. Are we done with our California geography lesson? <laughs>
0: and before we go on, before we jump into the history of the legendary Purple Onion Comedy Club in San Francisco, I'd like just to give a shout-out that, okay, Comedy History 101 is coming to you live on stage on March 19th to the Pit Loft in New York City. That's right. We are going to do a live version of our podcast, and we would love to see you there. It's 7 p.m. on March 19th. You can find out more at the Pit, the People's Improv Theater website or our website, ComedyHistory101.com. So I am going to be there live on stage. Scott, you'll be there via Skype. Because you live Scott, in Berlin. Very
2: exciting. Yeah. <laughs> will you put up a little camera so I can see the audience? We we
0: will indeed. So anyways, okay. we hope to see you guys down there at our very first live show. Ooh, that's so exciting. Excellent,
2: yeah, it's exciting.
0: But it's not as exciting as what we're going to talk about today, which is the legendary Purple Onion Comedy Club, which was located in North Beach in San Francisco, out the precise address, 140 Columbus Avenue. It was our underground club at... Okay. So I heard two different things. I heard there was 24 steps to get to the underground or 12, but, uh, I think, I think it, we can concede that it was 24 steps. Cause I've read that in, in more, um, um, sort of, uh, uh, historical articles on it. Uh, it was known for its purple awning in front with those crazy, like fifties fonts with a purple oh, yeah, awesome onion. Font. And yes. the purple onion was named after a bordello in Paris. And a wow. second a second tie is that we have both performed there.
2: Yeah, I was going to point that out. Yes, Harmon and, and myself have both performed on the legendary stage of the legendary Purple Onion. So yeah, but not good. at the same time. No, not at the <laughs> same time. Years yeah. apart.
0: Yeah, and we could dig into that later. But basically, it's one of the most famous comedy clubs of all time. And as you know, if you perform there, such as... Scott and myself have. Um, you can almost feel the comedy spirits in the room. It, it, it was—it's just sort of like a hole in the wall dank. You got to walk down these stairs. Um, it's not a big room. It seats about eighty people. Um, there's weird sort of nooks and crannies to it, like sort of bad sight lines. But uh, you could feel the spirits in the room. You can feel your. Lenny Bruce's, you could feel your Richard Pryor's, you could feel your Woody Allen's, you could feel your Phyllis Diller's, <laughs> all in the room. But, but Go ahead. You're Maya,
2: Maya Angelou's, your Maya Angelou's as well. Kingston That's Trio's. That's right. Yeah. Jim Neighbors. <laughs> yeah, and
0: there's a funny story about Jim Neighbors that we'll dive no, no, into no, in, we'll in a bit, it. but um yeah, so again, it wasn't a big thing, but you could, like... We played there long after, you know, the heyday of the 50s and 60s. But I think back then it was like kind of elegance. You know, you almost yeah. feel like, you know, tablecloths. And, uh, you know, you, you could feel that it was like kind of like it, and it still was like a big event to perform at the Purple Onion. It was just something about that room was just very, very special. And again, you yeah. could just feel the, the, the spirits of comedy that 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 uh, preceded your performance there. And, and that, that always had like a good show there because it was just like, you're yeah, just weird, always and so happy. Thing
2: is, yeah, the yeah, the um, stage is not that big. It's only a few inches off the ground.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it's just a tiny, tiny room. Um, and pretty much up until the end, the room was almost intact of the structure of, of what it originally was when it opened in the 50s.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And even, even they kept like the same, uh, the last owner, uh, I think his name was, his name was Mario, uh, Antone, I think, but, uh, he kept the original purple onion sign that was behind the stage.
2: Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, uh, it was always hard to miss that awning and that was, that was a pretty ha- happening little corner there. That was around, um, isn't that near, um, Broadway Vesuvius? Yeah, yeah. Vesuvio's. Vesuvius, isn't there right across the street or something?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or? But it's closer to another bar called Vesuvio's.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that that, that
0: that's, yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, sorry, um, uh, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, again, it's like in in the fifties, uh, San Fran, late fifties. You know, we're talking about your your marvelous Mrs. Maisel era of comedy. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, in in the late fifties, early sixties, San Francisco was the epicenter, even over New York on on just uh in the world of comedy.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. How. Um how it started out that way. In well, New
0: York, well, New York is just, it's just a much bigger city, but uh, you know, oh, in this area in North beach, San Francisco, that was just the epicenter of entertainment besides, you know, the purple onion, there was clubs like the hungry eye, which was actually the number one comedy club at the time. And purple onion was considered uh number two. I think, I think the reason for that was um, Purple Onion had more sort of variety acts. Um, that's where the the Kingston Trio got their start. Right. Um, uh, John Phillips, before he was in the Mamas and Papas, I think is was it a group called like the Journeymen or something like that. Okay. I think I think they were a house band there um, at the Purple Onion. And Maya Angelou she uh, she performed there, and and like Rod McQueen. So it's kind of like a variety sort of club. Um, and and again, that, that kind of digs back into the history of, let's say, 1950s entertainment. Because the Purple Onion, according to two reports, it, it said it opens its doors in 1952. I also read it, it opened in January 1953. It was under the management of a guy named Keith Rockwell. But uh, really the people that ran it and were the heart and souls was this brother, his sister and brother-in-law, Virginia Ginny. And Irving Bud Steinhoff, um, who worked who worked weekends at the club when they took took over in 1960 and, and managed it, and, and Virginia continued to um, operate the club until 1989, which is crazy. While uh, Bud operated until his death in 1983.
2: Wow, that was that's a long that's a long time running the club.
0: Yeah, and again, I was just in San Francisco in January for SF Skeffs Fest, and. Uh, Sadly, you know, the, the, the Purple Onion closed September 28th, uh, 2012, after nearly 60 years in business. And right now, it's just an empty space.
2: Really? This is, nobody's doing anything with it?
0: Um, it got taken over by a club called Doc's Lab a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. We'll dive into that a bit, but right now, it's just empty. It's just an empty space. With just a stairway gated leading to a locked-up door.
2: That's weird.
0: Yeah, well, you know, rent's expensive, and it's kind of like yeah. a, a basement club, so it's like there's nothing that would lead you there if you didn't know that something was <laughs> there.
2: No, there.
0: So let's go back. Let's go back to the 90s. Okay, Scott, Scott, uh, put on your, your, your time portal, okay? You, yeah. got, you got your beret on?
2: I got my beret and um, my sunglasses and I'm swinging, Daddy O.
0: Are are, are you smoking a reefer?
2: Smoking a a reefer and I'm. What are you? What are you reading? What are you reading? I'm reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road, man. Far out, Daddy O.
0: How? I've seen the best minds of my generation gone to madness. Whoa, my book's banned because it's the 1950s oh, no. and I'm, I'm in San to Francisco. Francisco. I'm gonna have to go to City Lights and read poetry there in the, in the
2: aisle. And they have a drink of Asuvie videos.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, why don't you explain? So, I think this will be like, you know, sort of our jumping in point of what, how the the Purple Onion uh, came to be and and what was going on
2: in in, in San Francisco in the 50s. You need to put some jazz in the background here. Or
0: or just some bongo drums.
2: Yeah, Um, yeah, so, I mean, the the, the beat scene was. You know, had a couple epicenters. You know, it was New York, of course, but then in San Francisco, it was. You know, the the, the beat scene was. You know, with poets and and what have you there. So it was pretty large. Um, and actually, if you didn't know this, Harmon, mm-hmm. the term beatnik was actually coined in San Francisco by uh, Herb Kane. Is that how you pronounce his last name? I've, I've seen it. The, the legendary newspaper writer Herb Kane. Yeah, yes, the legendary newspaper writer who coined it, and. 19 uh, 1958 April 2nd 1958 is when he uh, wrote coined the term beatnik in his um, column in the San Francisco Chronicle. Oh cool. Um, How
0: what was uh, yeah. in re- reference?
2: Um uh, it's because Look magazine had come to San Francisco and they'd, basically they'd ha- held they were looking for pictures of beatniks and they'd mm-hmm. kind of put on a house party. Basically, right. what they did was put on this house party, and then just gave away a lot of free booze. Yeah, and the, and the word got out on the street, and so wound up like there's. I think they were looking for twenty people or so, and wound up like two hundred and fifty people showed up, mm-hmm. you know, to drink the free booze and did their beatnik thing. And that's what he was uh, he he was talking about. Um, he he uh, the quote from used in the column. Let's see, it's the. Look Magazine, preparing a picture spread on San Francisco's Beat Generation, parentheses, oh no, not again, hosted a party in a North Beach house for 50 beatniks, and by the time the word got around the sour grapevine, over 250 bearded cats and kits were on hand, sopping up the free booze. Their only beat, you know, when it comes to work. <laughs> ah,
0: I thought it was coined yeah. by like, uh, it might not have been Jack Kerouac, but I thought the reference was, uh, the, it was the beat generation because that generation missed a beat, you know, it was like following World War II. I thought that was actually the catalyst for the term beat Nick. Well, no, or I mean, beat the, generation.
2: The, yeah, the beat was something else. I mean, the, the beat was, was didn't Kerouac have a Book called that, or they just called themselves Beat or whatever, and then. Well, I thought it was, I thought someone
0: might have coined it after, say, Kerouac's, uh putting the quote, you know, "We're the Beat Generation" because we missed a beat. So yeah, um, that, you know, after World War Two.
2: Yeah, so and then and then Kane because I think they were already known as the beats, and then mm-hmm. Kane just added the Nick on the end because you know Sputnik had just happened, so people were putting Nick on the end, of everything. Oh, so it's
0: like Mondo beat if he added Mondo yeah. to things. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, it's like Mondo, it's like nobody's doing that anymore, we need to bring that back as well.
0: Yeah, no one's doing the Mondo anymore. But then again, so again, that's what the sort of the catalyst, like, say, okay, it's 1952. There was a, uh, you know, there were like kind of like, even back then, there were kind of like the mainstream comics, which were kind of, you know, coming off of, say, like the Borscht Belt and all that. And it's kind of similar in the UK when you went from like mainstream comedy in the early 80s to what they called alternative comedy with, like, Rick Mail and, and the guys from The Young Ones that came in and, and changed the face of comedy. It was the same sort of scenario here uh, in the 50s where there was, like, you know, the mainstream guys like your Bob Hopes and Milton Burles. Um, and then there came, like, these smaller rooms, like the Perbunian. It was 80-seat room, and you would have... You would have a folk singer, you would have a poet, you would have, you know, a musician, you would have a comic all on stage. And much, I think, here's a hypothesis, much like comedy everywhere, and I've seen this happen, like when I was starting out in comedy, you would have an open mic. It would be like, say, a poetry open mic. And then first, like, one comic goes, and then the word gets out, and suddenly there's, like... No poets and all comedians that used to slowly <laughs> take over the fucking bill. <laughs> so I I, that's remember. what I was thinking. Like uh, yeah. you know, they, all these coffee houses with poetry, and then the comics just moved in and took over the stage time.
2: Yeah, I remember going to. I remember going to a coffee like one last time. I was in L.A. I remember going to a coffee shop in Highland or something, mm-hmm. and then like they had they had a sign up there there for their, they were having their yeah like just like you were saying they're having they're having their folk music open mic mm-hmm. night, and then it said everybody welcome, and then at the bottom. Of it it, just says no comics.
0: Yeah, because that it just sort of uh, comics sort of just swarm in like flies when when there's stage time (laughs) and then then Mm -hmm. it stops being um, what it it originally intended to be. So like I was saying, um, Purple Onion was number two, because I think Hungry Eye also did uh, folk music. In fact, uh, the Kingston Trio.
3: Now the Hungry Eye
1: is proud to present the Kingston Trio.
0: Do you, yeah, do you know any problem. Kingston yeah. Trio songs? Tom, <laughs> I, you know, I, I know of them. I know of them <laughs> as an entity. I can't for <laughs> library. I, uh, I know I read that, but I just I can't. I don't know how they sing or whatever. Uh, but there's a they played they, they an album at uh, um, the Hungry Eye, and Hungry Eye was the number yeah. one club in the city. And I think it had uh, more comedy than
2: the Purple Onion. They wore a lot of striped shirts.
0: Yeah, and I heard I heard they're from Palo Alto and I heard uh, part of their appeal is they had a really big mailing list, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is like anywhere. Like, you know, you would have a lot of Twitter. That was like the Twitter followers The Twitter of the
2: day day was the mailing list. Yeah, well, they were, you know, they were in college still, I think, or just out. And so they just knew a lot of people.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Palo Alto. So did they go to Stanford? Is that a possibility? Yeah, Yeah. that was a possibility. So so yeah, like I was saying, like uh, Hungry Eye was actually the number one club, and I I I think Purple Onion that's where like the more kind of known acts were would perform, and Purple Onion was more for like uh, up and coming acts. That's what I
2: read. I would agree with that. Yes.
0: So you know they say like Lenny Bruce performed at the Purple Onion,
2: but I
0: I don't he wasn't like a regular performer there. I. I I think like anything else, he would probably like pop in and, and do sets there.
3: I don't want some sharp chick that can coat Kerouac and walk with boys. I just want to hear my old lady say, get up and fix the sink. It's still making noise. All alone. All alone.
1: Like a near sighted dog wears the bone. Ah, but it's better. To be all alone, no more taking out the garbage, hear her yakking on the phone. I gave her everything, even my mother's ring. But to me, she was
3: so petty. Sometimes I wish that she were dead, but it'd probably take her two hours to get ready.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so anyways, uh, just to dive into what is the Hungry Eye, um, I think the owner was a man named uh, Enrico Bandusi. And he ran the club. Yeah, I think he actually had a small slice of ownership in the Purple Onion because there was an article I read and we'll jump into her later on Phyllis Diller that uh, she begged uh, Enrico to get the audition at the Purple Onion because he had a part Mm -hmm. ownership. Um, So currently in San Francisco, there is a club called The Hungry Eye. It's a strip club. But it's all mm-hmm. o- it's only a name only because they just licensed the name because the original location um, I heard it was located where uh, you've been to San Francisco and seen like where Francis Ford Coppola yeah. has his restaurants mm-hmm. and his editing suite. So right. um, that's what I read where the original location for the Hungry Eye is, which is, you know, basically uh, like about one block from the location of the Purple Onion. OK, yeah. Yeah, and I think they moved that to Geary Square, like in the '60s, like late '60s, and made it a music club. But they said on like any given night in San Francisco, not any given night, but you could jump from club to club, and you could see, you know, Woody Allen on stage. You could uh, see Phyllis Stiller, You could see Mort Saul. You could see Don Rickles, and the other big clubs of the time were uh, Bimbos, which is still there, and it's a uh, Pretty Darn Cool Club. Uh, Annie's 440, which is said, uh, that's where Lenny Bruce would mostly perform. Um, That was on Broadway, a club called Facts. And uh, yeah, so those were like, and then The Hungry Eye and The Purple Onion. So, Mm -hmm. you know, again, that's like the regular rotation of all the big acts. And again, they say Woody Allen performed at The Purple Onion, but I think he mostly did, you know, he would, actually perform at the bigger clubs.
1: I have never had in my whole life good relationships with mechanical objects. I, I don't know what it is, but anything I can't reason with or kiss or fondle, I really get into trouble. I have a clock that runs counterclockwise for some reason. <laughs> and, and my toaster pops up my toast and shakes it from side to side and burns it very deliberately, and I hate my shower. Uh, if I'm taking a shower and someone in America uses their water, <laughs> That's it for me, you know. And I leap from the tub with a red streak down my back, screaming, you know. Oh, I spent $150 for a tape recorder, and as I talk into it, it goes, "I know, I know."
0: So here's like a review of the time yeah, in the Chronicle. That review's pretty good. Go yeah, do, do you want
2: to read it away? I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. Yeah. Um, It's uh, a review of Woody Allen from 1963, performing in San Francisco, uh, by the San Francisco Chronicle's Ralph Gleason. Mr. Allen is a small, elfin man who twists and squirms while he talks in a manner reminiscent of a spider climbing a web. His arms go up and around his head, he bites the back of his hand, twists his hair, and in general looks like he's trying to raise his hand for permission to leave the room. So, Mr. Gleason, not a fan. Oh, woody
0: allen, yeah and it's also again when woody allen popped on the scene like the old guard like your you know like your milton burles and and whatnots uh they they looked at him like you know that's not professional you know and again it was like the changing of the guard of comedy with the, this right, new yeah. wave and do you know who was the big game changer of not only san francisco comedy but this uh, you know, kind of this new breed of comedians like during the 50s is uh, Mort Salk.
1: As you know, there's been a lot of talk about the U-2 the last couple of weeks. As you, you know, that started on the 1st of May when the plane was shot down and the president reserved comment until he could c- assemble all the facts and weigh them and discuss it with his advisors and then deny it. So then <laughs> Khrushchev turned around and said, I'm sure the president didn't know about the flight. And the State Department said, of course he knew. And the president said, yes, I've known about all the flights. So so then the president said, why are they so self-righteous? They've got a lot of spies in our country, too, which they have. And if we're lucky, they may steal some of our secrets, and then they'll be two years behind.
0: (laughs) What what, what do you know about Mort Saul?
2: He did current events. That was his thing.
0: He, he was like, the, yeah, he was like the, the the John Stewart of the day. So yeah. he he changed the game uh, in, in 1953 when he started performing at the Hungry Eye when he was a, a Berkeley grad student. So, you know, again, like the old guard, like your Bob Hopes and, and, and whatnot. And why not I'm pluralizing it? Because there's only really one of them. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, he would come on stage in a V-neck sweater instead of like wearing a suit, like holding like a newspaper and just like riffing off of like you know the news of the day
2: yeah I mean that's a classic there was a one of those Texas outlaw guys can't remember his name but he kind of used to do the same thing
0: yeah I mean again we've seen that but just in 19 through 1953 eyes of what you knew about like stand-up comedy and uh, you know just a guy dressed like you on stage just you know not doing like joke 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 set up joke and just kind of riffing you know about the news of the day. Um, mm-hmm. You know that was, you know, at the time that was like groundbreaking. It was, it was a game changer. It was it was like uh, the Sex Pistols, yeah. If this if, the, the if in V-neck if sweaters, in yeah. V-neck <laughs> sweaters, if the Sex did Pistols comedy in did comedy in, the 1950s. <laughs> in V-neck sweaters, <laughs> each each of them holding a newspaper.
2: Oh yeah, that'd be awesome, man.
0: And riffing on songs about the news of the day. So yeah,
2: I mean, like they could go nuts over Brexit right now. Oh,
0: oh, they yeah, yeah. I mean, they still can. I mean, all of them are alive except Sid
2: Vicious. Oh, that's right. Yeah, except yeah. for Sid, he's dead.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, anyways, let's let's dive into the heyday of of the Purple okay. Onion. Um, so again, what. What made the Purple Onion special, and, and we're talking about the comedians that came up through the Purple Onion, you know, besides like, uh, you know, Jonathan Winters, uh, who's a Bay Area guy, uh, Professor Irwin Corey, and, and of course, the woman who's one of, one of the, the very first success stories of the Purple Onion was a woman by the name of Phyllis Dillon.
4: I'm pretty sick and tired of having my bras come back from the Laundry March flat work. <laughs> how do you feel about an A-minus cup? <laughs> and I know I'm the only woman in America over 40 still wearing a training bra. <laughs> but my husband is usually absolutely no help because, you know, he boozes. Oh, Kelly, how do I tell you? he gets so high, he won't drink without a net under him. <laughs> In fact, he thinks he's royalty because everybody's always talking about his highness.
2: <laughs> Phyllis Diller, yes.
0: So you take those three comedians, and they kind of really reflected the the, the flamboyant, eccentric uh, flavor of San Francisco of the time, mm. you know, the the feel of the city. Like, Jonathan Winters... Um, you know there's that story of him I think he was performing at the hungry eye that night that like after his set he 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 ran to the wharf and he, he climbed up like I don't know like a a a flagpole with no clothes on like he totally <laughs> lost his mind
2: oh yeah I heard that I've heard about that one. yeah yeah
0: yeah though so I do think he was performing at the, at the purple or at the hungry eye that night so and professor Erwin Corey, you know I wasn't i like vaguely can picture what he looked like so I did a Google image search he had like crazy hair I don't really know I'll just drop in a, a clip of him here
1: <laughs> why why does a chicken cross the road <clears throat> well actually it's not a chicken it's a rooster that's looking for a chicken
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is
1: that explains the chicken it.
3: stays where he is the
1: <laughs> rooster comes to him I see why is it that women women don't have whiskers
0: well you've been going out with the wrong girls <laughs> Yeah. So again, these are like kind of like they reflected the city of the time. Just, you know, San Francisco up until recently was known for really eccentric characters. Now, now, you know what it's known for? Twitter. Headquarters of <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's a head. It's where you go to build your app.
2: <laughs> That's where you go. Yeah. The, the dot com craze.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Google. And it's, it's not even dot com craze anymore. It's the app craze uh, now. App so, craze, yeah. Yeah. yeah, app yeah. So, in the 1950s, uh, a, a East Bay housewife burst on the scene. She was a mother of five. Uh, she had no manager. Um, she worked by day. She was like a copywriter uh, for radio stations. So... Um, and she was hired by the Purple Onion. She was uh, 37 years old at the time. Her husband talked to her in performing because I th- I think he was like out of work at the time. So on, on one of those, I, I believe they had like regular Saturday afternoon auditions for comedians, which right, yeah. God, I wish there was like footage
2: of that. Oh my no that would be that would be crazy.
0: <laughs> oh my god like like really bad comedians in the 50s just like yeah I bet it's just like a lot of Marvelous Miss Mazel type moments mm-hmm. of just really yeah. bad comedians auditioning. So, she, <laughs> so like I said, uh, Enrico Banducci he owned a slice of the pie, and, and Phyllis Phil Stiller begged him and said, "I'm so funny, uh, please give me a job." Um, she was hired almost immediately um, after her audition, but again, she was soon fired because <laughs> uh, uh, Virginia or Ginny Seinfeld, uh, one of the managers, said, uh, "None of us Steinhof. thought, yeah." Steinhof. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, nice. They said uh, none of us thought she was very funny. <laughs> oh man! But she was hired. She was hired on March seventh, nineteen fifty-five, for her first gig, and she was doing four shows a night at the Purple Onion, eating corn dogs in hope of her big break.
2: That's crazy. I wonder. So, I wonder how long the shows were. So, you've performed at the Velveeta, and that's kind of my home club for. for yeah. Boston. Well, on I'm super... So... Sure. And, sorry. Good. I'm just. That's what so I'm using for reference. So they would do, there you'd get two shows a night. So you mm-hmm. know, it, was like, it was like a 9 and a 11 show, 9.30 and 11.30 or something. So that was two shows a night. So I wonder how, like, I wonder what the show times were. That's, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, again, I don't know how long the shows are. how many people were on the bill. You're probably, mm-hmm. again, like a showcase type scenario i i'm sure like again as as you can hear in our podcast on the history of the comedy store strike uh mitzi was the one who invented you know or you know one of the innovators of modern day kind of stand-up comedy bills with uh you know opening act middle headliners but i think back in the day it was just all kind of showcase and maybe you know when you had the special guests like woody allen or lenny bruce they got the long bit
2: yeah, here's the before we get into more. I'll let you get more into uh, Phyllis. I'll get a little, little more into the background here, which is interesting. Yeah. Is that what Phyllis talks about? Was that um, uh, so? Apparently, like when they would do these shows, they would turn them over pretty quickly. Like they would have the gray line bus tours would come through. Yeah, uh, the tourists. Part of the tour. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they would like, pack the club. And then uh, Phyllis said that she kind of scared one of the bus loads off. So, yeah. I mean, that was a thing that, that they just did in San Francisco. Yeah, where like. Like they would give you tours of the when the hippies got big, they would take tours huh. down into Hayd Ashbury and stuff.
0: Oh, they still do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um, but here's the thing, and and they also touch on this in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and which you can hear about our podcast on the influences of the marvelous Miss Maisels. Check us out on iTunes and subscribe today. Um, when when she started her act, originally started her act, uh, Phyllis Stiller, uh, she didn't dress grotesque, and she wasn't like. There's a clip of her on Groucho Marx's um, You Bet Your Life. Uh Uh, Have you seen that?
1: Now, fellas, let's find out some more dope about you. (laughs) Are you married?
5: Yes, I've uh, worn a wedding ring for 18 years.
1: Really? Well, two more payments and it'll be all yours. (laughs) What was there about your husband that interested you when you first met him, do you remember?
5: Yes, it was sort of a mating thing and I just took one look at him and I decided, well this is the way I want my children to look.
1: Well, did your children look like him then?
5: Yes, all five of them.
1: You've got five of five children? Yes. That beats a full house and you've got that too, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> now, fellas, what do you do to break up the monotony of housekeeping and taking care of five small gorillas?
5: <laughs> well, uh, I'm really not a housewife anymore.
1: You've got five kids, you're not a housewife?
5: I beat the rap.
1: You mean your kids came through with push-button controls? <laughs> How is it you're able to get away from housewifing?
5: I'm an entertainer.
1: When um, did you arrive at this uh, decision?
5: Well, I was much too old.
1: You mean to do all five it. kids were squawking one morning? They and you were says, yelling
5: and screaming. He you <laughs>
1: says, uh, enough of this, I'm gonna be an entertainer?
5: Well, sort of like that. I decided it was silly to wait any longer because I really always felt I could do it. Mm-hmm. And so I made a, an appointment for an audition.
1: Are you are you still uh, an entertainer? Yes. Where are you employed now?
5: At the Blue Angel.
1: Oh. Uh, could you do a little of your act now?
5: I'd, I'd love to. Say it's
1: 30 or 40 minutes?
5: <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of difficult. I mean, I can't. I know it is,
1: but the audience... Uh, They're in a receptive mood right now.
5: Well, I know they like my dress. (laughs) But uh, Mr. Marks was talking about his psychiatrist, and I decided I'd surely better be well-adjusted before I went into such a shaky business. And uh, uh, so I decided I should be analyzed. And I went to this analyst. He's helped me a great deal. In fact, uh, I am so much better now that I get to sit up.
0: But, you know, she looks normal and she she started her, you know, her set looking normal until one night a club owner said, you smile too much, be hostile. Um, So, (laughs) again, uh, it was like in what you see on The Marvelous Mrs. uh, Maisel is like, you know, you have uh, who's the one character, Sophie or something? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, she's sort of like a TV version of Phyllis Diller. You know, you couldn't be, like, feminine on stage. You had to be, like, sort of like a caricature in a way. Yeah,
2: here's uh, this, I, this is a good quote that I just kind of saw from... They're talking about that book, Seriously Funny. Mm-hmm. That, uh, yeah, which is, um, uh, you know, comedy history in the flesh. But uh, it's an interesting quote that they talk about the... Uh, The name the Purple Onion, they refer to it as a basement bohemian bistro.
0: Mm. Yeah, there we go. A lot of bees in that sentence. So it's really good. Yeah, Yeah, again, it was. That's what they said. Like these tourists would walk down these stairs and you would just suddenly be in this sort of dungeon-like thing
2: and on stage would be like no windows yeah
0: no windows and then on stage would be like phyllis diller (laughs) you know (laughs) and and your your 1950s mind from ohio or wherever you're You're from in the midwest
2: would just be blown you know you gotta walk is isn't the door open up right kind of near the stage
0: no, the stage is on the other side, but, uh, oh, you know, yeah. again, it's just a very intimate room, which makes it great. Yeah. You know, I love those yeah. sort of uh, intimate rooms. But mm-hmm. another thing is, like, uh, Phyllis Diller is um, uh, she she is a classically trained uh, p- pianist. And oh uh, always make sure I say that word right. Yeah. Definitely. I'm referring to being able to play the piano really well. Be able to play and not a, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she started her act with... Um, Doing like a lot of musical impressions, like on the piano, she would do like impressions of Eartha Kitt, and she would do like comedy songs, you know, before she got her voice. But mm-hmm. uh, um, the big comic of the of the time was a woman named uh, Georgie Remus. Have you checked out some of her stuff?
2: Yeah, she was mostly known for. She would be more, I guess you would call it more of a cabaret act.
0: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, well, to begin with, I must explain that they have let me out on a leash tonight, and uh, I, hope, I hope I behave myself. Uh, my entire outfit was given to me by an admirer. I haven't spoken to him since. <laughs> well, have you ever known one of those years when everything seems to go all wrong? Sort of thing where you wake up in the morning on the wrong side of your life, and <laughs> the first thing you discover is that your husband has run away with your best friend, and you miss her.
2: Yeah, so she would kind of do the thing where she would she would do uh, tell jokes and then sing a song and, and something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, Jory, yeah, Jory Remus.
0: Yeah, and it's crazy. And this also, she was the star of the Purple Onion at the time. And, and she's yeah. basically just lost to history.
2: just uh, well, yeah. While we're talking about her, she was, you know, obviously, as you said, she was a big influence on Phyllis Diller. But she was also the person responsible for getting Maya Angelou to start singing at the Purple Onion, which is really like I didn't know that. That was kind of interesting. Um, yeah, actually, we'll put it up on the website uh, in the article in the blog post. But there's actually an ad. For you see that one? There's an no. ad for My Angelou Sing- Yeah. Oh <laughs> Sing- really? Oh boy. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah so, yeah. so that uh, Jory Remus just kind of like people thought she was dead for a while or something, and because like apparently the story was that some newspaper printed her obituary, but it wound oh, up oh, that wow. she just she had moved to Hawaii, so she was just living there, and she w- she was on Hawaii Five a few times. And yeah, Magnum P.I. <laughs> In P.I., yeah, that was her last TV appearance.
0: Yeah, but two things interesting about her: she she did do jokes, but yeah. if if you listen to like her her jokes, her and her timing, and you listen to Phyllis Diller, it's almost the same exact mm-hmm. sort of uh, uh, delivery. I
3: told you, um, I told you where I got this, but I didn't tell you what it was. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just um, came back from San Juan, and uh, I always wear this when I fly. It's a sort of a dressy jumpsuit. It's uh wash and wear. It's for the champagne flight. Uh, this is drip dry.
2: Yeah. Exactly.
0: So Phyllis Diller got a, a lot from uh Jory Remus, which is very interesting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And is and here's just another funny Phyllis Diller uh tidbit is um Uh, You know, like all her jokes are about, you know, her husband Fang. It's kind of funny. That's a funny name to call your husband Fang. Fang. Yeah, yeah, that just started out as like an ad lib, you know, during a Purple Onion set.
2: Yeah, excellent, man. We love Fang.
0: Yeah. So again, uh, you know, just jumping out of uh, uh, Phyllis Diller being, you know, one of the big first breakthrough acts to come out of the Purple Onion. um, So she was she was hired, like almost immediately fired. And then rehired and then performed at the Purple Onion for a record, um, I believe, 81 weeks.
2: Yeah, that's a long time while we're just talking about her. Uh, interesting thing. I don't know if you knew this, uh, Harmon, but the uh, you can now access all of Phyllis Stiller's personal papers at the California State Archives. She donated all her papers to there. So they, got, oh, uh, wow. Her her set lists and jokes and, and business papers and things like that. So they're there if anybody wants to dig into Phyllis Stiller's personal yeah, papers.
0: Yeah, because she, she used to keep a filing cabinet. All her jokes were yeah. in a filing cabinet. There's a documentary about her. Um, and she had this huge ass filing yeah. cabinet in uh, on index cards. Way. It was jokes. So you gotta fucking love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think she's fucking funny, man. She's like hilarious. So you just start good jokes. The character's funny. Kept a filing yeah, cabinet like of jokes.
4: I'm so sick of having bird legs. You know, I was in an elevator the other day, and some ugly broad looked at me, and she said, "The last time I saw a leg like that, there was a message attached." <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, she, has, she had that like one of those, maybe we could do failed TV sitcoms, but she also she had a sitcom. No way. Like in the late 60s. Yeah, it was the late 60s it was called, I think it was called, yeah, The Pruitts of Southampton. And I think it was one of those ones that was on. She was basically like this really witch, rich woman who had lost all of her money, but was trying mm-hmm. to still pretend to be rich. And I think it was like one of those shows that was only on for like three episodes or something.
0: Who, who's the co-star? Dabney Coleman.
2: Oh no way. Right. was it was he the the co- star
0: No, no, I'm just he's throwing great, that name man. out there. Yeah.
2: Oh no, yeah, he's, I love David Coleman. Um let's see. Uh actually no, so this is on for a couple seasons. So it was oh. on for two seasons. Um uh Reginald Gardner was the co-star. And what what does IMDb tell you about him? <laughs> um like we can we can do a whole episode on Reginald Gardner.
0: Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Or just the early years.
2: Yeah. Make it a two-parter. Oh, Oh, he was on the Monkees as a butler. He was an English guy, so he was like... All right, okay. He would always play like upper-class English guys. Um, Yeah, he was on Batman as well. Oh, all right.
0: He had a career. He had a career. Again, like we were saying about uh, Georgie Remus, it's like... All these people that have had careers that are just forgotten in comedy. But then again, you know, you think about back to, like, say, the Velveeta Room and other, you know, comedy scenes that are coming up. And there was always, say, the one person that, you know, was the big person of the scene. And, you know, they go sometimes don't go anywhere. And it's like, you know, these people are just, you know, very talented, like Georgie Remus and just just lost and lost to history. So that ends part one. That's right. This is a two-parter on the history of the Purple Onion Comedy Club in San Francisco. Next Next week, obviously, we'll be back with part two. We'll find out what happened to the Purple Onion, what led to his demise, what, what took place in Purple Onion in the 90s? What, what, what about in the 2000s? What happened then? But, and and what, what club opened after the Purple Onion? We'll, we'll answer all those questions and more on next week's episode of Comedy History 101. And with that, it's time to plug away. Scott, what do you have to plug?
2: Hey, Harman. Well, as everyone knows, so I have a new short film out called "Everything You Always Wanted Everything You Wanted to Know About Sudden Birth," but we're afraid to ask. A documentary short. We premiered at Sundance 2019, and we're about to hit the festival circuit. So we have our first screenings are going to be in um, at the Florida Film Festival in April. We also have another screening in April that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but it's pretty big. So it's be cool, and then we'll, also, we'll be on the festival circuit the entire year. So hopefully you can catch that somewhere. And then also, my co-host, Harmon, and I do another podcast called This is the President, which you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, Last.fm, and everywhere you find your favorite podcast episodes.
0: Ah, and with that, uh, what I have to plug away, of course, I plug this at the top of the show, is... Comedy History 101 is coming to you live. Yes, live on March 19th, 7 p.m. at the Pit Loft in New York City. Yes, we will be there live on stage, except for Scott, he'll be there via Skype. And we'll be presenting an episode of Comedy History 101. We would love to have you come out and see us live in New York City, March 19th. And by the way, if you want to subscribe to uh, Comedy History 101, of course, you can go to iTunes and do that or veer through our site, Comedy History 101. And we love it when you leave comments and we will read them on the air. Thanks a lot for tuning in and bye-bye. You're stupid. so stupid.
1: Good thing about doing comedy in Russia you have
3: captured the audience. You're stupid. So Comedy History 101.